sometimes when we hear these stories in the way they're delivered to us in the lectionary, um, I want to hit my forehead against the wall. And I think it's important when we have certain stories to address them in a little bit different way than we normally would. Hence, uh, this stool rather than um, this uh, typical piece of furniture um, that I use when I preach on a Sunday morning. And I, I would say, you know, just for logistics sake, I, I want to see you eye to eye today because this is a story that is loaded because of the way that it has been interpreted over the course of the um, last few centuries. I should also say we have two loaded stories, right? <laughs> that first Job story, which I'm not really going to preach about this morning, tells the tale of, of God and the devil making sport out of a righteous man's suffering, which is a really challenging story to deal with. And the gospel delivers us this story where Jesus makes particular commentary around the practice of divorce and the dissolution of marital relationships in a way that has been interpreted over the centuries as very negative and has done harm to folks who um, at one point in their life moved toward the altar with a beloved, with the full intention of their hearts um, to, to see this thing through, and it just didn't happen that way. If you have heard me preach before, you know that there are that there are moments in time where I want to take our lectionary, this tool that delivers us readings week after week uh, on a Sunday morning, and I want to throw it out the back door and, and never use it again. And this happens to be one of those Sundays. What my frustration with the lectionary is is the, the lectionary makes these assumptions about um, what we know about the biblical text. And, uh, and the primary assumption is that you and I know it and that we know it well and we know it nearly chapter and verse. And if we don't know it chapter and verse, we at the very least know it scene by scene by scene as we would know our favorite movie. But what I also know as a priest is that's just not the case. Um, we don't necessarily know this story scene by scene by scene. And the truth of the matter, is, as most of us know, is that we adjust scene by scene as different evangelists, different gospel writers tell the story in a slightly different way. There are times when I as a preacher long for the mechanism that was used in those old Saturday afternoon serials that came long before I was born. Because this is one of those weeks where what we really have to have some sense of is that the Lone Ranger was tied to the tracks last week 
and the train was coming down the track with the expectation that next Saturday morning or this Sunday morning, we open up the story and we know exactly where we are in the story. But I also know we don't. We don't have some sense of where we are in the story. So I'm going to take us back just one chapter in Mark's gospel so that we can see these three beats of the story that Jesus is trying to flesh something out in a meaningful and powerful way rather than to shame people who have suffered the loss of a marriage. So if we go back to the very beginning of chapter 9, we have that story of the transfiguration. And it's this wonderful moment where Jesus picks his executive team. Remember, he just takes three disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, up the hill with them. They have this mystical experience. The word that is used in the Greek is metamorphothē. He was, he was beyond changed. The countenance of Jesus and who he was was so different that when he came down the hill, it was as if a different person was walking down the hill. And what we're supposed to hear in that story is this is a brand new way of hearing and telling the story of God loving God's people and creation. That's the first beat of the story. Jesus moves directly from that experience of the transfiguration toward a man whose son is afflicted with a demon, today we would say with mental illness. And Jesus moves toward this man who says, Master, please heal my son who's afflicted. And it's one of those moments where Jesus says, like, I don't even have to touch him. Um, your faith has made your son well. What we miss in there is Jesus comes down the mountain after this profound experience, and he does something that is surrounded by enormous religious controversy. He engages with people who are unclean, which in turn makes him unclean. This is something new. Jesus is hanging out with people we didn't used to hang out with. You see that? And then he, he drops this little lesson in there of like, bring these little children forward. It is those little children who teach us this new way of living which is also an eccentric way for a rabbi to teach because typically, like when we're doing this, we send those kids off to Sunday school to do their own thing, right? That's the first beat of the story. They move down the road, and if you remember, we get this very first question that comes with the first beat of the story. If you remember, the disciples are arguing, and what they're arguing about is like, who's the best, best disciple? Now, maybe Jesus has created this problem by, by um, promoting Peter, James, and John in the first place, by leaving the others behind and taking the executive team up the mountain. But there's some bickering, and then Jesus turns the story upside down again, and he's like, 
No, 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 no. If you want to be first, you need to be last. This is upside down again. And then he references those children again. So that first question, that human question that Jesus is answering in a meaningful way is, who's the best? Don't we find ourselves in these kind of competitive relationships, or perhaps we did in the past? Like, who's the best in here? Who's the best at what they do? And Jesus is like, the best of you is not who you think it is. He's turning the way that we see the world upside down again. And then there's this second beat of the story, which is, of course, related to the first, where the disciples, after being um, reoriented with Jesus' teaching about the first being last and the last being first, they come upon someone who, using Jesus' brand, using Jesus' name, is casting out demons. They come upon someone who is doing exactly what Jesus did in the prior scene, but they're unauthorized. They don't have the Jesus copyright, you know, at the bottom of their business card. And the disciples get a little prickly around that, right? They come to Jesus. We saw this guy who was casting out people your name. We told him to stop. Jesus is like, no, no, no. Didn't you hear what I was saying? This thing is turned upside down. It's different than the way that you saw it before. I want you to see with fresh eyes the world as a flatter, more loving creation. That first question, who is the best, turns into a second question that we humans wrestle with. Who's in and who's out? That helps us understand the world. Oh, you're, you're a Democrat? Well, I'm a Republican, so you're out. Oh, you are from the big city, but I live in a small town, so you're out. Oh, you're from this side of the family tree, and the controversy occurred, and I'm from that side of the family tree, so you're out. And then there's this moment with kids again, right? Here come the little kids again. He says, you know, in that old language that we hear, which is somewhat confusing, suffer the little children unto me. Do you remember that translation? And we're like, suffer? What? And it's from the Latin, suferere. Bear them up. Pick up kids and bring them to me right now, which is the opposite of what a typical rabbi would do. A typical rabbi would say, mm, mm, those kids go off to Sunday school over there. They don't sit in the pews when we do our adult thing. Jesus then, if you remember from Mary's preaching last, last week, when, when these children come to him, he uses this exaggerated um, scenario where he says, you know, if one of you gets in the way of these children accessing the kingdom that I'm talking about, 
it would be better that someone put a millstone around your neck and throw you into the sea. Jesus is saying, like, it would be better that someone stuff you in a bag of rocks and throw you into a deep pool in the river rather than getting in the way of one of of the way that these kids are interacting in creation in a community of love one that we might call naive that some might call ignorant that some might call childish but Jesus is saying no 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 this is the way that it happens and then you remember he goes on to make an even more exaggerated story of like, if your eye causes you to sin, you should pluck it out and throw it into the fire. If your hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off. And, and look, I, I mean, I'm here to tell you, like, if you don't know that Jesus is exaggerating there, that he is using exaggeration as rhetorical advice, I can't help you. Fundamentalism and literalism has done severe harm to the way that we embody the faith. And we, as moderate, story-loving, love-loving Christians, need to speak up about that. This is not a literal story. And then the third beat of that is just what we have today. Well, let me go through that. So, so we've got that who's the best. We've got that who's in and who's out. And then we have this third beat of the story. And Jesus and his disciples are on the road to him again. And those literalists come to him. Good teacher, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And do you think these people know what the rules are? You th they do, right? They're testing him. They want to make sure that Jesus is a rule follower. And Jesus refuses to engage them in that real conversation, right? It seems as though he is forbading the practice of divorce, which Moses affirms. You know, I mean, you say so, but what I see here is the dissolution of loving relationship, and who wouldn't oppose that is Jesus' lesson. This third question that humanity brings to the threshold of Jesus' new worldview that he's putting forward since the transfiguration is, can we do whatever we want? Are we allowed to do what pleases us and what serves us best and he's like you know no I can't tell you that you can the point that he's trying to make here is that the work that you and I have to do as people of faith is the embodiment of love and care and concern to our neighbor those people who are right in front of us and those people who are distant from us what Jesus is trying to put forth is not the reversal of a rule, but in fact, maybe the reversal of almost all the rules that we've made as humans 
at least the ones that don't support loving, nurturing connection. This is not a story about divorce. Last week was not a story about sin. This is a story about living together. And the metaphor that Jesus uses three times is children. Unless you become like one of these little children, you will never get it. Let go of the rule book that you have taken on as an adult human. Let it go. Let it go. In 1945, George Orwell wrote a book about animals on a farm staging a coup to take over the farm from the farmer. You remember this? You remember having to read this in 10th grade Western Civ? If you believe that George Orwell wrote a book about animals trying to take over a farm, then maybe this is a story about divorce. But if you believe that George Orwell wrote a book about the Russian Revolution, then you can see that we are talking about a new way to live. Not things to do or not do, but a way to be in the world, particularly when it comes to the way that we connect with one another and with God.